Hi, I'm Dr. Tanya Bailey, and welcome to Arts, Artists, and Advocates, a podcast-based program designed with you in mind. You can find more information on lccconnect.com. Go ahead, do it today. Arts, Artists, and Advocates is a series of conversations and performances that explore diversity, equity, and inclusion through the arts and activism. We're highlighting the work of people on our campus and in our community that's making a difference. The death of George Floyd in the summer of 2020 catalyzed a social reckoning that put diversity, equity, and inclusion at the top priority of many organizations and in higher ed nationwide. Many of our students, faculty, and staff from across the world participated and engaged in protests and really are doing great work around activism, both off and on campus. In this era, College presidents must be responsive to new paradigm shifts when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion in order for those movements to be aligned with this institution and its surrounding community. In fact, every college president that is deciding to work on DEI on their campus should take a note from Lansing Community College, who's been a leader in DEI and has made unwavering commitment to the profession Shameless plug for LCC. So today on Arts, Artists, and Advocates, I am so excited to talk with LCC's president, Dr. Steve Robinson, and gain insights on what's next for LCC. And our topic today is moving the DEI needle forward, a presidential chat at that. So please put your hands together and welcome with me the one, the only, the amazing Dr. Steve Robinson. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Bailey. There's no, so there's no hype person better than you. I love it. Well, I love hyping you up because, in fact, it's all true. No flattery, just real stuff. No. I'm so excited that you're here. I know you have an amazing podcast, and so to get you on here is an honor. Um, but I want folks to know who may not really know the real Dr. Robinson, uh, tell us where you're from and how was that influenced your work. Well, thanks, Dr. Bailey. And it is wonderful to be here on your excellent podcast. So uh, I grew up in Metro Detroit. You Mm -hmm. know, my mom lived out in the suburbs. My dad lived downtown. So I Mm. spent the weekends in downtown Detroit, but I went to school in Troy. Yes. And then when I was 18, I moved here to Lansing to go to Michigan State. Wow. And uh, I earned all three of my degrees here, bachelor's, master's, and PhD in English. Nice. And um, between the master's and PhD, mm-hmm. I started a full-time faculty job at Mott Community College in yes. Flint. Go where, Flint. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Go Flint. I know. So um, I was at Mott Community College for 23 years. and wow. uh, But I had my uh, community college conversion experience mm-hmm. here at LCC. I, you've heard me tell the story many times. Yes. I fell in love with our community college mission, the diversity mm. of our students, and when you and I use that word diversity, we're talking about all kinds of things, yes. uh, cultural background, age, social background. And so that's what turned me on to the community college. It's why I've never left. And uh, and that's what brings me here. Well, we are delighted. Uh, I'm just going to say the word blessed and uh, really, really grateful that we get to have you as a president. That's kind. Um, it really does matter. And, you, and your journey matters. Um, I want our listeners to hear you describe what diversity, you started talking about it for a minute. Mm-hmm. What does diversity, equity, inclusion mean to you? And why is it important for you as a college president? Well, I, I think I want to answer in two ways. Okay. I think I think that in defining diversity, we can go, come back to our values as an institution. Mm. There are a lot of ways we articulate those values. You know, our, our current advertising campaign is you belong here. Yes. Now, there are some those are three important words. And when mm-hmm. we say you, we mean 
Everybody, every (laughs) you, every you. And you and I have talked a lot about belonging. In Mm -hmm. fact, a lot of um, ODI departments are adding the word belonging, as you've taught me, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Yes. Um, my, my wife was the HR director of an arts organization back in Ohio and their chief diversity officer, they actually, uh, gave that title, the director of belonging. I love it. I do too. So, so you belong. And I also think the word here is important. Here Mm. is Lansing. Here is our spaces, whether they're digital spaces or the downtown campus or West campus or all of our locations. We want everybody to feel that they belong here at mm. LCC. So that's the, in terms of our values, then I'm going to get a little more nerdy about it. Go and ahead, talk go about ahead. Some of our, some of our specific uh, uh, articulated values like our board end statement. Mm. Uh, so that I'm entering my third year as president. And one of the things that you helped me <laughs> and the whole team do is embed those principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the stated board ends. Yes. Now, for listeners who yes. don't know what end statements are, <laughs> yes. you know, a, a, a group of trustees, rather than running the college, sets a, a, a standard mm-hmm. that we have to meet, some mm-hmm. outcomes right. or ends. And one of the things that's interesting about those ends is that's how I get evaluated in my job. Right. So my report card, one-fourth of my report card as a president is are you achieving equitable outcomes for our students? That's powerful. Are we building a community that is representative of and serving all mm-hmm. of, of uh, the constituents in our community? Mm-hmm. So those are a couple things it means to me. The last thing I'd say, Dr. Bailey, and you've taught me a lot about this, is <laughs> diverse organizations are more effective organizations. Mm-hmm. Diversity is not only the right thing to do, but it gets better results. And I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about oh, that. We, we I could, are. I, you've taught me so much <laughs> that I could I could talk about this forever, but You're that's, so that's good. my answer to your question. It's an amazing answer, and I'm glad that you gave, um, gave real serious thought. You actually, now many listeners won't know this, but you actually pushed for DEI to be a part of how you're measured, because when you arrived, it wasn't. Right, right. There was there was a statement in the board ends about access. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's do a teeny history lesson of our organizations. Sure. Our community colleges were founded on an access agenda and mm-hmm. access is important. Yes. Right. There has to be an open door. Absolutely. But you know that if you open the door, that doesn't mean everybody can walk through. Oh, right? you're teaching good. Uh, well, I'm a, I've been learning good. I've been learning good. So so the, the, the access was what we call Community College 1.0. Right. Mm. Community College 2.0 was completion. You know, Mm. people come through the door, but do they leave out the other door and go and Uh, achieve their goals? Yes. But Community College 3.0 is about equity Mm -hmm. and it's also about social mobility for students. Because why are we here? Our students want to either uh, transfer to a four year program with momentum or they want a great job where they can uplift their family. Yes. And that's what we're here for. And whatever their desire is, LCC can help them Absolutely. along that path. I love that. Thank you for that. You, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the African-American church, we would say amen. Uh, that's OK. <laughs> I'd say amen, too. Amen to that. Well, listen, Dr. Rosen, you've heard my podcast before, so you know we have a little fun. Yeah. And I have a game called If. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's play. In the game called If, I'm going to start with a if statement. You have to complete that statement, and I'm betting you're going to get it right. Well, we'll see. <laughs> All right. Our first question for you in the game called If. If diversity 
was an automobile, what would it be for you and why? (laughs) See, I struggle with these hypotheticals because I get (laughs) in these creativity loops, right? So if diversity were a vehicle, Mm -hmm. what would it be? Mm. Oh, I would, it's got to be a vehicle that can accommodate a lot of passengers, right? So I'm thinking a train or a bus, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe I'm going to go with a train. Okay. Um, But you know what I don't like? It's good. Is that good? Audience says yes, we'll Well, accept train. The problem with the train, though, (laughs) it has tracks and you know where it's going. And I think diversity probably needs a little more flexibility Ah. about where it's going to go. So here I am second guessing my answer. No, you're great. Okay. Okay. So you got that right. Here's the next question. If inclusion was a dessert, what would it be and why? <laughs> Look at the face. <laughs> oh, I, I don't want to be uh, uh, flipping about this. Probably would not have dairy in it because we'd want everybody to be able to have some, right? Good it would answer. be gluten-free. <laughs> yes. It would be dairy-free. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Maybe be uh, a, a sugar-free snow cone. <laughs> but it'd still be delicious, oh, right? Oh, it'd be the best sugar-free <laughs> snow cone you ever had. And everybody would want it. That's absolutely. <laughs> okay. You are doing two for two. Okay. Here's the last question in the game called right. If. If equity was an article of clothing, mm. what would it be and why? Well, I think it might be a hat because mm. theoretically everybody has a head to put their hat on, but not everybody has all their arms or legs. And Dr. Robinson, so, you're so good. Well, I thought about <laughs> equity, you know, yes, like, yes. The, you know, an article of clothing. I mean, I, I know friends who don't have all their limbs. And right. So if you got them a nice shirt and, you know, yes. so maybe a hat. A hat. We will accept that. And guess what? what? You just won on the game card. Is. <laughs> oh, this is just our way of helping our listeners learn more about diversity, thank equity, you. inclusion. And thank you for playing along. It was fun. Let's get into our next segment. Sure. In this one, I want to dive a little bit more into our topic, which is today, moving the DEI needle forward. Um, I have a quote I want to share. I often uh, mention this quote. It's by John C. Maxwell, famous leadership author. He says, change is inevitable, but growth is optional. With this vast, um, great resignation, many changes happening on college campuses, As a president, how would you advise other college or even university leaders? How do we navigate this change by embedding DEI into our college fabric? So I'm going to start off putting on my English teacher hat. When okay. you say moving the needle, we're already dealing with a metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, um, and what we're talking about with a needle is some kind of a meter, right? Yes. You know, yes. like we're in a radio studio right now and mm-hmm. the really talented engineer who's doing the, our Very recording, talented engineer. he's watching <laughs> needles to yes. make sure that our levels are right. Correct. So um, built into the idea of moving the needle is measuring things. Mm. And that can make things uncomfortable. So Mm -hmm. what we're measuring is what are our outcomes for disaggregated groups of students, particularly underrepresented or minoritized students? What are our what's our employee mix? We're talking about that Mm. right now. You know, what's the diversity of our faculty and our staff? So I think to answer your question, Mm -hmm. you got to start with measurement and um, and data. Yes. And people fight about data. 
data are confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's that old phrase, uh, you know, figures lie and liars figure. Yes. <laughs> but but what you have to do is 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 develop a baseline. Yes. And if you're going to move the needle, you got to know where it is first. That's so good. So that's that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But I think you asked a bigger question about okay, if we're measuring and we know we're measuring mm-hmm. and the, and the and the and the needles here at yes. maybe three. And you set a goal of getting it to eight. Mm-hmm. How do you do that with intentionality? Love it, right? Love and that's it. something I've heard you talk yes. about a lot. If you're going to move the needle on important values like diversity, equity, mm-hmm. inclusion, belonging, it doesn't happen by accident. No, you have to have hard conversations. You mm-hmm. have to set goals. Um, and you have to work at it. Yeah, well, excellent. I want to. I want to dive more into that because you're leading me without even knowing it in my questioning. I I don't know what your questions are. (laughs) Oh, he doesn't. Everyone, he does. He has no knowledge. I didn't send it to him beforehand. Mm -hmm. So it is difficult. What you just shared, right? It's difficult. Talk about how you have navigated as a president, right? Because as a college president, you have a lot of you a lot of challenges, right, in this area, right? So how how have you done it? Well, it's it's a challenging job anywhere, but what I will tell you is uh, LCC is well positioned to do this work. Yes. So this is my third year. Mm-hmm. Not every community college has a chief diversity officer or, a, or an office of diversity Facts. and inclusion. Facts. That's thing number one. Mm-hmm. Thing number two is not every college has very strong board support for this work. True. And I know that. Mm-hmm. I know that firsthand from talking to community college presidents all over the country. That's good to we're, hear. We're a really diverse country and in many ways kind of a divided country. Mm-hmm. Not kind of. We really yeah, are yep. a divided country. And so to have seven elected board trustees that vote seven to zero mm. after the murder of George Floyd yes. and Brianna Taylor and others that this is a this is an issue that we're going to deal with and mm-hmm. we're going to have action and 7 to 0 said to their <laughs> new president you will develop an equity action plan and yeah. you will turn it into us by um, your six month anniversary, which was what you and I yes. did together. And as a leadership team, you've heard me say this, mm-hmm. that was a gift. <laughs> it was a gift to be given an assignment like that because I have counterparts across the country who can't engage in this work yeah. with the openness and intentionality that you and I do. LCC is a great place. And, and that was that was my thinking for you. Mm-hmm. Receiving this amazing appointment as our our new president mm-hmm. three years ago, you're not new right. anymore, right? You're in the fabric, <laughs> um, and receiving a somewhat of a charge. We want you to do this, yeah. and we want you to do mm-hmm. uh, good work around DEI in six months. For you, that was appealing, right? Absolutely, no, yeah. no. It was one of <laughs> it was one of the things that attracted me to yes. the college. Okay. And as I and as I've told you, mm-hmm. your leadership, the uh, OD, the ODI department, was Thank one of the you. things that made this an attractive opportunity for me. Mm-hmm. It was a long term goal at my previous institution, and I was developing some of the support I needed mm-hmm. to galvanize a team around that work. But it was already well underway here. Yeah. And, you know, I was hired in that in that awful summer of oh. racial reckoning. Yes. Right. Yes. And so um, what we see is a lot of colleges had said things hmm. that summer. Yes. Uh, but our board took an extra step and said, we're going to say something, but we're also going to require with accountability right. that it be translated into action. And kudos to to our board. for Absolutely. real, Because around this work, there is a lot of rhetoric. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not enough action. Uh, and so we even had a national conversation on DEI that really spoke to how we move from rhetoric to action. How do you 
move from rhetoric to action. Well, I, I, you, you, you do it in, in fellowship, allyship, accompliceship with, uh, with like-minded colleagues. That's good. Right? And, and, and for LCC, if for our local listeners, we, they have to know that we're, we have a national reputation for mm. doing this. You mentioned the national conversation that you led. Sure. That was after we, uh, a year ago, we presented, uh, at um, the Amer- the Association of Community College Trustees about our our yes. equity work, and we invited the whole country to be part of one of your courageous conversations because <laughs> we did them locally all the yes. time, but we had a national conversation on that. And I'm I'm proud to tell you, I just returned from New York City yeah. at that same conference a year later where we were recognized, LCC was recognized as the Central Region Yay! Award winner for the Equity Award. <laughs> That's right. Charles Clap it Kennedy up. Equity Award. I love it. And put us, and while we did, we, I think we, we, we should have, but we did not <laughs> win the national award. We, we, we lost out to one of the leaders in this area, the wow. Community College of Baltimore County in, in Maryland, where they've been doing this for a long time. Mm-hmm. But we're now part of this short list of names of colleges that really do this work well. Absolutely. We so are, in essence, we won. <laughs> oh, we did. Yeah, we absolutely. We got a trophy. We yes. will see it. And yeah, we did. That is so, so But we're not good. done. Oh, oh, we're so not done. No, we're not done. We're not done. We mm-hmm. are moving to action. And we're moving actually to the last segment of okay, the show great. today because mm-hmm. I think this is going to get to the meat of it. So you mentioned before the role of a college president is already tough. Right? It is. It's, it's not an easy role. Mm-hmm. When we talk about having difficult conversations around DEI, what are you hearing uh, from colleagues across the nation and some of the struggles they're having? And what would you say to them if they were listening in today? Well, I I have a few things to say. One of them is uh, there are communities that are not as well prepared or willing to have the conversations that we're having. Hmm. So even though they're tough, you you lead our courageous conversations, some Mm -hmm. of the equity work, most of the equity work moves people to a place of discomfort. It does. Um, you, it requires a growth mindset. Mm-hmm. It really does. A continuous improvement mindset. Yes. But um, there are places where it uh, is not just uncomfortable, but maybe not safe to have conversations like this. I have counterparts who could imperil their careers by moving this wow. uh, this work forward. And I, and I think that what I would say to those colleagues mm-hmm. is uh, keep trying. Yes. Right. Yes. And 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 move the conversation where you can. Yes. Right. Absolutely. I, I appreciate that because I think um, whether you are a college president, you're president of your family, it doesn't matter. Right. Right. We're all leaders. We're all our leaders and looking for ways of how do we move particularly diversity, equity, inclusion forward, how we move that needle forward when we know there might be some difficult points or pain points for some. And, and you, you hit on that. I have a question for you, Dr. Robinson. I want you to describe for our listeners um, a stereotype around your culture that you want to demystify. Around the culture I come from? Mm-hmm, yeah. Oh, that's that's a that's really interesting question. I can yeah. think of stereotypes that are probably earned or <laughs> true. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think that there might be, and and I I probably need to be really specific. Okay. You know, you know, people could make guesses about me listening to my voice, but I'm a mid fifties white cisgender, you know, yes. uh, guy, okay. right? Right, yes. married, mm-hmm. you know, and and so. I think some assumptions about my culture, mm-hmm. uh, uh, sort of white Midwestern culture, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm trying to think of what they might be, the ones that might be not true. Um, 
Well, when you when I'm you, struggling, you, Doctor Bailey. Well, no, this really no, yeah, it's, yeah. it's good. This mm-hmm. is this is the segment where we're supposed to struggle a little bit, yeah, but, yeah, but 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 get to it. So, um, I'm a black yeah, female. You are, um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of stereotypes about both of our cultures, right? But yeah. Part of the thing that I think um, people may think about is that you don't really care too much about DEI. Right. That it mm-hmm. doesn't apply to you. What would you say to a stereotype like that for you, your culture? You helped yeah. me out a great deal because sure. what I was coming up with was off the shelf. There was more than stereotypes. There were cliches. Got it. Something yes. about, you know, white men can't jump. Or, <laughs> oh, we don't have any rhythm. You know, that's really serious. Totally not it's, true, by the way. But really, yeah, yeah, I'm a pretty decent bass player. Yes, so. he is. But but um, but those are cliches. Now you've moved my uh, thinking. I think that there is a stereotype of particularly um uh, privileged white folks mm-hmm. who do DEI work that mm-hmm. we are maybe virtue signaling or posturing or mm. doing this out of some kind of, uh, you know, prioritizing this work out of a sense of um, wanting to look right. virtuous yes. or moral or mm-hmm. um, or out of guilt. Mm-hmm. And I can honestly tell you that my colleagues, uh, yes. my my white privileged colleagues across the country who do this kind of work, do it because they absolutely believe it. Yes. Yeah. This is. I mean, Dr. Bailey, life yeah. is a short journey. Mm-hmm. I don't have time to do things I don't <laughs> don't believe in yes. or don't feel invested in. Yes. And um, and I and I love the job I had before, mm-hmm. but I connect with the mission of what we're doing here so much deeper because of the equity work, the belonging yes. work. I think that gets oh, to it, your, it definitely that's not does. a surface. I didn't want to give a surface answer. That's I that promise I think is you a, no. it was not surface. No, that one was and, the and real. I, I really believe that our listeners got a, a closer insight to who you are because, you know, this work is not easy work. No, we talk about moving the needle forward for, for diversity and inclusion. It means, yes, intentionality and people being real, identifying you automatically self-identified yourself. You automatically began to share your passion mm-hmm. and your why, which really helps people to see I think I can do that, too. Mm-hmm. I think I can join that, too, which further dis- demystifies uh, stereotypes of why everybody should be involved. Well, I appreciate that. And thanks yeah. for helping me grow through the question because no, I, was, I was struggling there. At the no, beginning. you did great. So I want to I want to leave our audience with this because okay. there um, is talks that we've had about transitions. We talked about a little bit more about you and, mm-hmm. and your passions around that. Mm-hmm. I want our listeners to know two things. One, what mark do you want to leave? on this world as relates to DEI and what's next for LCC as it relates to DEI. Right. I, l- I love the question because the first, the first part is uh, you have a phrase you use a lot about leaving a mark and not a stain, right? <laughs> yes, you know, sir. we, and, and so uh, I've been privileged to, I'm privileged to enter my third year as president of this awesome college. Yes. I, I am hoping for many, many more. And, and one of the things that I would love to leave here is some uh, deep work in our culture. Mm. We've spent a lot of years de- building out um, th- probably the most gorgeous community college oh, campus you've far. ever seen. By if you've, and, and by the way, our listeners, if you haven't gotten out of your car to walk through the yes, downtown campus on. or go inside West Campus, make some time to do that because this is not your mental picture of what a community college is if you've never been here. Correct. So we've, and, and we built out great programming. We've got programming. We've got all kinds of great recognition. Yes. But uh, my focus from the beginning of my teaching career, I, I spent a decade as a union leader. Hmm. I, I, I want to work on 
culture and the and uh, communication mm. and openness and transparency. So I love it. Uh, that that's one of the things, and those things take a while. They do. They really do. They um, uh, they take a while to build up. It takes people a while to let their guard down and Absolutely. be and be open to that. So it would be one of culture and inclusivity okay. and and belonging. That's a good legacy. That's the, that's, so that's the, the mark. Okay. Now, you asked a really practical question about the future. Yes. Now, Dedalian has some Kleenex here. We <laughs> might need it. I don't, we I, might need it. I know. So, so uh, Dr. Bailey, you've been an amazing chief diversity officer. You're leaving you. the college. Now, what I want to tell everybody who's listening, yes. and I've told you many times, is while you might be leaving the college, the work that you've done here, it's not just one mark, it's many marks. And you've built us up to uh, not only just national recognition, but we got a lot of momentum on this important work. We really do. And we'll be doing it for the rest of our careers. Yes, we will. So you and I will be working (laughs) together even even though you're not going to be the chief diversity officer anymore. But what I do want everybody to know is by the time they hear this, um, Mm. we will be searching for a new, not a replacement, but But a a new new. chief diversity (laughs) officer. That's a model I'm committed to. I love that. There, I think there has to be a um, C-suite executive charged with DEIB that Mm -hmm. reports directly to the president for a bunch of structural reasons, not the least of which is this is hard work. It is. And there are all kinds of ways it could get crosswise with different departments and get involved Mm -hmm. in politics Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And this person has to have a direct line to the CEO of the organization. So wow. that's what we're going to do. And we have, um, our, um, you know, our um, senior vice president for business yes. operations, Dr. Selena Samuel. Shout out. Yep, <laughs> yeah. We'll be working with your team and mm-hmm. uh, the initiatives to make sure that, they, that we don't lose momentum during that search. Absolutely. So um, and then I would just reiterate something we talked about at the beginning yes. of the show. The principles that were in that resolution on racial injustice yes. through equity. Um, have been embedded in the board ends. Mm-hmm. They are fully one-sixth of the college's strategic plan. Yes. And this is work that goes well beyond your department and your position. There yes. are hundreds of people at LCC doing this work, and that will continue. If you had any doubt, listening audience, whether or not DEI will continue long after the Tanya Bailey experience, <laughs> <laughs> you have now been confirmed that this community college is dedicated from its boards to its presidents to every person that's here. You know, Dr. Robinson, I always say it's not about the me. It's about, it's the, about we. the we. Yeah. Yes. I tried yes. to say it at the same time, <laughs> unison. We got It's about the we. Uh, I have been just... Um, emotionally charged in a very good way because you've been here today and not just here on this podcast, but here, period. You are a active, visible, very present president. And it's been a privilege and an honor to work and serve with you. And this right here is for life. So, <laughs> you know, it is Dr. Bailey. Thank you for all you've done for LCC. I know you'll continue to do great things in this space uh, yes. throughout, throughout the, uh, the world. <laughs> and uh, I, on behalf of everybody at LCC, just let Aww. me say thank you for your time here. Well, thank you so much. And listen, and thank you all for listening to Arts, Artists and Advocates. We appreciate you tuning in today. This is a podcast based broadcast.
Podcasts. And you can find more content at lccconnect.com. Go ahead, do it today. Arts, Artists, and Advocates is a series of conversations and performances that explore diversity, equity, and inclusion through the arts and activism. We're highlighting the good work of people at LCC and for those that's making a difference in our community. I am your host, Dr. Tanya Bailey, and I'm reminding you that you matter. We'll see you next time. Featuring the faculty, staff, students, and others that help to make Lansing's premier college what it is today. LCC Connect, Mid-Michigan's connection to Lansing Community College. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. November 16th through the 20th, Lansing Community College Performing Arts presents Everybody, an adaptation of Jacobs Jenkins' 15th century morality play, Everyman. For more information, visit lcc.edu slash show info. Yeah, you, it's me, your heart. Listen to me. We've got to talk. High blood pressure is serious, and yours? Whoa. What happened to us? We used to be so much more active. But lately, you've been ignoring me. I know you think I'm just going to keep ticking away forever, but you're wrong. You can do so much more to control your high blood pressure. Doing the minimum isn't doing enough. I'm under a lot of pressure and can quit whenever I want. Bet you didn't know that. But I like my job. Just treat me better. Check on me. Give me something green to nibble on every once in a while. And maybe we can do some exercise on occasion. Let's get to it. After all, we're in this together. Listen to your heart. Don't let it quit on you. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get your blood pressure to a healthy range before it's too late. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. Check, change, control. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. Founded in 1957, LCC has addressed the needs of Michigan industries through education for more than 65 years. Anchored by the downtown campus located in the heart of Lansing, LCC serves mid-Michigan communities with additional campuses in Delta Township, East Lansing, and Livingston County. The college offers more than 200 degrees and certificate programs and is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Those interested in learning more about LCC may visit lcc.edu slash youbelong. LCC Connect Voices Vibes Vision From Lansing Community College This is LCC Connect And this is Land Stories With me, David Seawick Each episode explores a different topic Such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities Buildings and other phenomena That make up the history of our college and our region we tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. And in this episode of Land Stories, we're going to continue where we left off in the previous episode, looking at the history of the uh, Interstate 496 Freeway in Lansing, Michigan, with a particular focus on 
not necessarily the lanes and traffic volume and freeway engineering, but on what happened to the community that the freeway was put through. And specifically, we're referring to the neighborhood that, uh, well, mostly was demolished when that freeway was put through. And last week, we had a guest who joins us again today, Patrick Sambier. Hello. Hello, Patrick. So glad you could come back today. Of course. And we also have Bill Castanier. Nice to see you again, David. Very good to see you. Also to see Patrick for the first time. And we'll talk about that actually here in a little bit. So we are um, going to continue our exploration of the Interstate 496 Freeway History Project, which was called Paving the Way. And Bill, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about, well, first, how did you get involved in this idea that you would study the history of this freeway and then focusing specifically on the people that were displaced by it? And then I'm good at asking long questions. So uh, sort of part two of that question would be, how did that idea germinate into something larger? Well, one of the things I, I think that helped spur this idea on was my own personal history. Some time ago, I was showing my grandson the places, many of the places I li- lived and my wife and I lived in Lansing. And we went and drove by him and took photographs and Coming across that expressway, which 50,000, 60,000 people do every day, there's no concept of what was there. That at one time, that was a teeming neighborhood with 600 homes and businesses. And I thought, well, I could show my family where I lived. The people that lived in this neighborhood could only only show them, oh, I lived next to the, like the yield sign. That was my house was right there. And come to find out, I was totally accurate. Uh, like I said, 50,000 people traverse that road every day and don't give it one thought to what was once there. And we've lost totally, totally lost that history. And what we wanted to do is recreate that history to the best we could possibly do 50 years later. Many of the people, obviously, that were primary sources are dead now. Uh, mm-hmm. They would have been in their 90s. And so that was basically the inspiration for it. And we started thinking about, okay, how could we do this project There was a federal grant available that specifically spoke to the history of African-Americans and their neighborhoods. So we applied for that grant. We got a $50,000 grant in combination with the city of Lansing. And we started to try, we knew we had to make this a grassroots effort. The historical society historically was not very diverse, frankly. It's mostly old white men. And we wanted to change that atmosphere as best we could. And one way of doing that was work with grassroots people. And very quickly, we discovered two people, um, Adolph Burton and Ken Turner, who had started to shoot videos of people they knew in the community. And we took it from there, and that became one of the many pieces in the project to recreate this neighborhood. Probably one of the most important pieces, though, because they were first person. Sure. And that's uh, something we're going to come back in a little bit, and I'll bring Patrick into the conversation for that. Um, You bring up an interesting point, though, certainly, and that is this idea that people that don't have a place that they can go to and point to a house and say, that was the one I grew up in, it sounds like that created this, uh, it's really a change in identity that stuck with folks for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. It's a year in the second and third generation before, and people have told me the story of not being able to show their kid where they lived. Sure. And so it was a common, it's a common experience. You could, you can go home again. Maybe not literally. You can't go into the house because you don't own it. But to be able to drive by where you grew up 
and played and had all your friends, and it's totally gone. I, it is one of those things that's hard to imagine unless you've lived through a bombing or you know something like that uh, during a war. The decimation is more than a physical structure. It's a loss of a cultural identity. Sure, and it's going to sound strange because I've lived in Lansing for many years, and I've driven down uh, Interstate 496 more times than I could count, but only recently, so since April, when the latest part of the reconstruction project has been going on, when I drive by that project, and, and especially when, say, about a month and a half ago, when all the dirt movers were out there and before any of the new pavement had been laid down, it really absolutely cemented in my mind this idea that when a freeway was put through, they destroy every single thing in its path, sort of no blade of grass left uncovered. And in Lansing, 496 is put below grade. So it's this incredible chasm of, of, of nothing and concrete. It's exactly. And I think the combination of rebuilding the expressway was an eye-opener for a lot of people because they'd forgotten what it was like. You could have probably shot identical photographs 50 years apart, and it would have looked, except for the equipment because it's much more modern, it would have looked exactly like it did. Sure. Which you could see the total decimation, huge dirt piles. Just It was an amazing thing to see, and people lived through that because 496, both fortunately and unfortunately, did not tear down the entire streets. They left the west and the east side sure. of those neighborhoods. So the people actually not only lived through the deconstruction, they had to live through the reconstruction. And uh, having a, an interstate highway now, essentially in your back or your front yard, as it were. And, you know, the interesting thing is there's lots of discussions about doing sound barriers on 127, continuing mm-hmm. them. There are no sound barriers on 496. And they thought the idea was of if it was 20 feet under grade, that would take care of the sound in downtown. That did not happen. That amplified the sound. It was almost like a speaker. Yeah. And it's you cannot stand on a front porch of one of those houses that's left on Main or St. Joe and carry on a conversation. Oh, sure. You can't do it. It's so loud. And, and it's one of these things where I think now nowadays probably even more than maybe even as recently as 20 or 30 years ago, People who drive down that road don't think about that, and here's why. Because most cars have air conditioning in them now. And even as recently as 20 years ago, many didn't that were sold here in Michigan. So when you drove down a freeway, and it was a warm summer day, and you had the windows rolled down, the noise is it's louder than being in a commercial uh, jet aircraft flying. Oh, it's it's loud. I'd like to see some decibel. Sure experience over there because I think they need. You know, I was really surprised in the reconstruction they didn't put in sound barriers. Yeah, and I honestly, I, I really was too. And, and in looking at that reconstruction, it's really quite fascinating. Even though I said I wasn't going to talk about highway engineering, we'll <laughs> talk about it for a second because it has a social element to it as we are identifying here. I was actually surprised as well that they are keeping those old, very short uh, entrance and exit ramps, and including some of these that have this sharp turn and you're right down in the freeway. And I, I suppose it's because actually of the uh, real one of the reasons why that freeway was put where it was, and it's all about acquisition of property. And the highway right-of-way has been established now for a long time, and to change those entrance and exit ramps would involve acquiring more property. And that gets me on to the next thing I want to ask you about. We'll bring Patrick into the, the conversation here uh, momentarily, too. So you 
have the National Endowment for the Humanities grant, and you have a couple people that have already started to record the stories of people who had their houses demolished, the neighborhood upset when the freeway was put through. Where did the project go from there? Was there a starting point where the money was there? We've got an idea how we're going to spend it, and now this is the project charter, if you will. Did it it start off like that, or was it a slightly different uh, operation? Uh, A little bit different. One, we applied for a grant, and to do that, you have to write out a grant project and say what you're going to do. Now, anyone that's done a grant knows that's the beginning, not the end, because as you start grants, you evolve, you change. For example, we thought we'd be using... um, African-American churches is the total outreach for this. We thought that was a good idea. Everyone did. That turned out not to be the case. We basically had to create our own network of people and doing grassroots. We talked about doing 20 oral histories. That's all. That's all we were going to do. Well, that very quickly escalated to nearly 100 oral histories. Things evolved, but we had several things we wanted to accomplish. One was the oral history. We hadn't really talked extensively about taking those and making them into a documentary, which is being done right now. We're going to publish an annual report that'll be on paper because we committed to doing that. But what what happened was the um, city of Lansing, the mayor appointed about 30-person advisory board with working with the historic preservation people and a variety of neighborhood groups. So we had a board to work with. We had a full-time person or nearly full-time person that was part of the grant. That's where the majority of the grant money went. And that person was totally involved in outreach. So we had to, we had to basically delve into a history of African-American families who knew the story but had not told it outside their own group of people. I mean, it wasn't like we discovered new stories. They were mm-hmm. always there. Sure. But this this group of people we're not sharing with, with the entire world. And I've, through the years uh, of being involved in various historical projects, have oftentimes learned that people, and Bill, you and I talked about this actually, I think when we um, appeared on Galaxy Forum with Melissa mm-hmm. Kaplan here a, a few months ago, when people have a story to tell, but they don't think either A, it's important, or B, that anybody wants to hear it, then those stories, they disappear. If, that, if it's never told, if it's never recorded, and 496 is put through decades ago. So nobody lives forever, as the old saying goes, because it's very true. And thus, if these stories were not recorded in some way, they might have been lost forever. Oh, they would have been. We're, in fact, we lost a lot of incredible stories because the people had already died. Mm-hmm. And during the project, between the time the oral histories were done and because of COVID, where there's about another dozen people that died that we recorded. Sure. That's so really their, their stories would have not been at all told, and we would have lost a really important history that we discovered. Yeah, which is really incredible. So, Patrick, I'll, I'll bring you into our conversation here. You, it just remind folks, and, and not everybody that's uh, listening right now has had a chance to listen to the first episode. So uh, how did you become involved in this, and what was the role that you played? Uh, sure, yeah. I came on the very end of the project, and I was in my last year of college at UM Flint. That was the beginning of this year. And I was looking for some internship work or some experience in the field of history, and I actually reached out to you 
and I sent you an email asking if there was anything that you knew of, and you put me in touch with Bill. Sure, and was very glad to be able to do that. And the, the primarily the work that you did was oh yeah, I'm sorry, that's no, right. that's I okay. Was, I was uh, subtitling videos. Okay, so that meant you had to uh, listen very carefully, obviously, and uh, to the best of your ability, record every word of it. Yes. Yeah, I've been involved in this work type of work before too, and if you've if uh, you've never transcribed a uh, conversation or an interview. Takes way longer than you think it does. Absolutely. Uh, it, you think, oh, wow, you know what? I'll just sit there and write down every word they say. That is easier said than done, isn't it? Yes, especially when you are trying to do it through. Well, it makes it easier in some ways that you have a digital form mm -hmm. to go back and forth. But the interface of that sometimes just makes it a little tedious. But sure, sure. But I, uh, we gleaned this out of the conversation you and I had last week, Patrick, but it, it, uh, it sounds to me like you were able to gain a valuable insight into what the people who, who lived through this experience thought about it. Yes. And Bill, were you able to determine in some way or another that people looking back on this many, many decades later might have had a different opinion of it now or have a different opinion of it now uh, in terms of the experience of going through having their houses bulldozed and the neighborhood being demolished than they would have had when this happened. I was wondering the exact same thing. And I'll tell you the impression that I got before Bill gives his you know, sure. far more knowledgeable answer. And uh, based on the couple interviews that I did, it kind of seemed that people had a more pretty stoic outlook in, in terms of it is what it is, you know, that's that's how it goes, mm -hmm. you know, the passage of time, et cetera, et cetera. And I was wondering if Bill thought that might have been partially been due to the passage of time. That was a real interesting, I'm, I'm glad you recognize that because that is one of the things we discovered. There wasn't the tremendous outrage. Now, again, a lot of the people we interviewed were second generation one of the things we learned is the parents did not tell their children what was going on. There was no discussion about it. Just one day, we are going to move. So there wasn't a lot of that brought into And I was surprised about that. But mm -hmm. they were protecting their children from a very terrible thing. And they did a very good job of that, I thought. And there was some outrage, though. There's clear, there was clearly outrage. There was also a sense of PTSD that we think we discovered People literally do not remember their houses being torn down. Wow. Which shocked us because they lived through it. Yeah. Because the way the houses were purchased, as soon as they purchased a house, the state, they tore it down. So there could have been three houses in between two houses still standing. So people actually lived through that experience, but not many of them remember it. The physical tearing down of the home. Well, that was a real surprise to us because it seems to me... It had to be incredibly traumatic to watch your home torn down. Oh, yeah. And I, I would think maybe that the people that you were interviewing now, of course, would have been quite young when that happened. And I suspect maybe that's part of the reason why that was such a traumatic experience. Is yeah. And, you know, we uh, one of the things that we learned is parents specifically, for example, one family took their kids on vacation because they knew the house was being torn down within a two-week period or something. They didn't want their kids to see that. Sure. They, so parents were very protective, which I think is a, is a natural occurrence. But we, we certainly learned that from listening to their stories. Yeah, it's really powerful. Was there one area in Lansing 
uh, one neighborhood in particular that you could say the majority of the people absolutely were relocated to. And where yes, was that? It would have been South Lansing. What happened is there was a large development in South Lansing that was readily available. It had gone bankrupt. It was it had been built in the fi- about fifty nine, okay. so it would have been a, about ten years old. Mm-hmm. Relatively new homes, not bad. Most people who could afford to relocate relocated there. Uh, one of the things there was is we we're still in the post war housing boom, sure, or, or demand for housing. There was a huge housing shortage overlaid on the construction of the expressway. So when you put 600 families into a market looking for housing with the concept that they could only live in certain neighborhoods, it created a huge problem problem for the city of Lansing. Sure. And we touched on this a little bit actually last episode. Patrick and I did the role that redlining and, and other racial discrimination practices that were put into housing played in this. And it sounds to me like that was a major factor in determining where people moved. I think two things were going on, too. Not only was a major factor in where people were moving to, redlining and the results of redlining and restrictive covenants, you could overlay the 1930s federal government housing maps over that, and they were almost always where expressways went. Oh, sure. Sure. It was it was simple. It was the least resistance because the cost, cost was less to buy the property. And in most communities, uh, people of color were not as were not as antagonistic toward the construction. Sure, and at that time, it, and this will be a comment that one could apply more generally speaking to the country as a whole. But at that time, certainly less politically powerful than now. Absolutely, and one of the things that a lot of people kind of lamented was it broke up a voting pack too. Oh, sure. It broke up an entire neighborhood that could have had an impact with electing, you know, people of color to elected office and and having a difference. It was broken up. Yeah, it's really remarkable to think about. As you mentioned towards the beginning of the episode here today, you drive down a highway every day. Okay, it's a highway. It's concrete. It's entrance ramps. It's exit ramps. I get from point A to point B. But <laughs> it's so much more than that. It has this incredible social dynamic to it that uh, really touches. I, we've we've talked about I think pretty much every aspect of uh, life that that a community has, and one freeway being put through can have that much of a transformative effect, both positive and negative, is really remarkable. Well, you know, one of the things it did in Expressway, it dead ended thirty five streets in Lansing. So that means 35 separate neighborhoods, whether they're black or white, didn't matter. They were separated. There wasn't, you could no longer walk to a next door neighbor. You had to go up to a ramp, come across and come back. That Mm -hmm. happened. I don't think there was any feel for that really when they were building these. No. Uh, When you said earlier about the uh, minority communities being less antagonistic towards construction, seems like that would have been for good reason because um they could be they could be challenged they could be uh one man it was not during the construction of this project but various other community work received threatening phone calls and kind of got told like by his employer hey do you know where your paycheck's coming from do you know who writes the name on your checks and uh, other other parts of the job. If they weren't fired, they could be moved, downsized, moved to a different department and doing less important work. Yeah, one of the things, I think, Patrick, that's a really good point because 
many of the people that worked, lived in that neighborhood, St. Joe Main Street, worked for Oldsmobile yep. or one of their suppliers. They had great jobs. They had the best jobs in America. So this was not a ghetto, which was one of the ways that was promoted to destroy neighborhoods. But it, there was a clear understanding that this was Oldsmobile's expressway. Sure. They were the number one power and force behind where it was located. Yep. So you did not do things that irritated your employer, especially if you were a person of color. Uh, I want to ask you one thing. We're talking about the early to mid-60s here. So how many people in this neighborhood might have owned a car? Almost everyone. Oh, okay. And they almost all owned, guess what? Oldsmobiles. Oldsmobiles. And, <laughs> you know, and if you went sure. to work for Oldsmobile, one of the most... We heard some really interesting stories, and you probably did too, maybe not, but it was um, people talked about how they'd buy an Oldsmobile. The first thing that African-American families did is they drove south in those cars because they, they couldn't take really public transportation easily. So they packed a car up with their kids, went south. It was a big deal to see a brand-new car in an African-American neighborhood in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Oh, sure. Tell you. People would see the... the um, Oldsmobile cruisers that had the windows along, and they would just sit in them and look. The other thing that was important is this was during a period of time when African Americans had difficulty buying houses. They did not have difficulty buying cars. It was easy to buy a car. Sure. So they, they one of the first things they did was buy cars. And the second thing they did is figure out, where can we go now? Because we were still, they couldn't go everywhere. Yeah. There was cars no place to cool back then, too. Yeah, oh, they had some yeah, great cars. All those, all those safety standards that make you have to change shape of the vehicle. Yeah, 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 and some of the interior components. Less and, of a death trap. Sure, and and actually, this is Patrick and I almost ended with this uh, last uh, episode. We talked about uh, whether or not the fact that Lansing was and still is in many ways a uh, community that has a major part of its economy being automobile production, if that changed the attitude that people had about a freeway going through, in contrast to maybe a community elsewhere in the United States that would have been the size of Lansing at the time that did not have the auto industry as a major part of its economy. And, and Bill, I'll ask you the same question. It, you're not in your head, so... We, we also both thought that it did. Sure. I, I absolutely believe we are a car. We are a car city. Uh, there's no question about it. So, yeah. to make it easy for cars to get around, we had all the one ways. We had sure. all kinds of things that weren't pedestrian friendly or yeah. neighborhood friendly. Absolutely, we were a car community. We and had thirty thousand some people working in the car industry at that time. Sure, and I still a car community. I mean, I I totally agree with you. Four ninety six is being rebuilt. That means it's going to be here for a long time. Mm -hmm. Last episode, I mentioned by comparison that I three seventy five in Detroit is being taken out. That little. I think it was the shortest stretch of interstate highway in the entire United States connects Jefferson Avenue to the Chrysler Freeway, which is I-75 as it runs through the eastern part of Detroit. And that freeway on a, on a very large scale, I-75, had a total disruptive effect, demolished the heart of the black business community in Detroit, was overtly political in its root. The leadership of Detroit at the time bragged about the fact that they were going to take this federal highway dollars and they were going to finally put that neighborhood the way they wanted it. Exactly. It was a bunch of people at the top kind of determining how people would live, you know, in neighborhoods. And uh, 
You're absolutely right about 375 uh, destroying a very important, not only cultural, but business neighborhood. And that's the other thing we discovered is we didn't really think about this before we did the project was all those businesses that were black owned or served blacks, 99% of them didn't relocate. Okay, why was that? There's a couple different reasons going on. First, the Open Housing Law, Civil Rights Act, that you didn't need as many black-only businesses because you could take your laundry to a white business, for example. But most of those businesses did not reopen. So there was a whole generation, maybe two generations, of lack of entrepreneurship. It, had, it was destroyed. It had been wow. crushed. Sure. Uh, and businesses like that, black, white, it, it, yeah, it wouldn't matter. Minority, I mean, that that is how those businesses typically survive is their generational small family businesses. Dave, let me bring up one other issue that I just thought of as sure. we were talking. We chose and selected the black neighborhood, even though thousands and thousands of white families were affected too. And the reason was we had a grant for the looking at the black neighborhood. But the one distinction that African Americans understood was they couldn't live anywhere after this expressway tore their house down. Whites could move anywhere they wanted to. Yep. Blacks were shunted off into certain neighborhoods or public housing, which started to get built to a great extent because of expressways. Oh, absolutely. And uh, yeah, that's a very, very important point because, uh, you know, I think that people who haven't lived through that experience and don't have the historical knowledge to know what was going on back then are oftentimes surprised to hear that, that there would be that kind of restriction that people would have coming at them from many directions. So we've got just a couple minutes left. I wanted to real quickly ask about the display of the information that uh, has been obtained through this. And I know that there was an exhibit that was planned for uh, the Michigan Library, and then when the pandemic struck, that uh, altered that plans. What ultimately came out of the the public presentation of this? Okay, what we decided to do because of COVID, we couldn't do things... it, you know, for two years almost, uh, working with Naps and the Ide family, we decided we are going to do an exhibit on the street, basically, in their former department store windows. It's kind of like, uh, you know, making wine out of grapes, mm-hmm. because one of the things that happened is more people probably saw that than they would have ever seen it in the Library of Michigan. And, sure. I mean, we just lived it because it took like six weeks to build and there were people constantly coming up to us saying thank you and we didn't know that and we could hear the conversations through the windows as we we're setting it up and it was pretty remarkable to people to see yes. the redlining stuff for example and say I had no idea none yeah so there's there's a lot more to do I think our next big focus is going to be to get the documentary done to make the oral histories accessible we're getting very close to that they'll be accessible in through Michigan State University and the Library of Michigan, so you'll be able to listen to individual stories. But the other thing I think we recognize is these oral histories need to continue, and they also need to be mined because there's amazing stories within them that we're going to tell some of the stories in an hour, but a very good filmmaker could go back and make their own documentary. That's great. Well, we'll have to leave it off for there because we are out of time, but I will definitely be following up in a future okay. episode with this as uh, this project is ongoing. So, Bill, Patrick, I want to thank you both for stopping by. We will leave it at that for now. Thank you very much. You betcha. 
You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories. This is WLNZ Lansing. You're listening to LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. To find out more about LCC Connect programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.